You're listening to Writers on the New England Stage with Malcolm Gladwell. This program originally aired in 2019. And now, please join me in welcoming Malcolm Gladwell. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here in uh, New Hampshire. I, um, I was trying to think. I think this is my fourth visit. I hope it's my most fun visit. The others were all in the winter, so this bodes well. Um, I thought what I would do is um, uh, uh, tell you a random story from the book, uh, and then, because I don't want to upstage any of the discussion that comes later. Um, and it's a story about before I came to the real subject of this book, which is an examination of the, of the death of Sandra Bland. I was kind of searching around for a topic that would uh, engage my imagination. And I have, this, um, I have this kind of rule that I use about what are the kinds of memoirs that I read. I think memoirs are an extraordinarily good source of ideas for writers. But my rule is as follows. You don't want to read the memoir of the famous person because they've had a really, really interesting life, but they're not going to share any of it with you because they're famous. Like, there's stakes involved. They can't diss you know, other famous people or they'll get in trouble. So they're high on the potentially interesting, low on the actually interesting. <laughs> then on the other hand, you don't want to read a memoir by someone who isn't famous because they will tell you everything, but they have nothing to tell you, right? <laughs> Their lives have not been that interesting. What you really want is the sweet spot in the middle. You want the mid-range biography. So I, I read lots of mid-range memoirs, and I was reading a classic mid-range memoir. It was a memoir I was reading by the former, former general counsel of the CIA. Now, that's perfect. Who's ever heard of the general counsel of the CIA? No one has, but he's the general counsel of the CIA. So he's like, he's had a super interesting life, but he's not so famous that he's concerned about burning all his bridges. He made reference in his memoir to another memoir by an equally mid-range writer <laughs> named Brian Littell, who is a former CIA uh, oper not operative official who used to run the Latin America desk of the CIA. Again, right in the middle. I read that one, and I went to see Brian Littell because it was so interesting because there was a particular story he tells which really caught my eye involving a guy named Florentino Espiaga. So I go down to Miami and I meet with Brian Littell and he tells me a little bit about Florentino and he says, but I can't tell you anymore because there's one person who knows all of the full story and his name is, I can only refer to him as the mountain climber. And the mountain climber was this legendary CIA operative who was witness to some of the most extraordinary events of the last 25 years. So I said, well, how can I get in touch with the mountain climber to hear more about the story of Florentino Espiaga? And Brian Littell said, I, I, I can't tell you. I, I can't tell you where he is. I cannot even tell you his real name. I, but I can only tell you that were you to find the mountain climber, he would shed an enormous light on this story. So He was basically waving the red flag in front of the bull. 
So what did I do for the next two years of my life? I tried to find a mountain climber, of course. And I'm not a very good reporter, I should say. But in this particular area of finding a mountain climber, I like to think that I excelled. And I sent out all kinds of feelers, and I went to enormous lengths. I spent a, an epic amount of time trying to find a mountain climber. And one day, I looked at my phone, and I saw I had a message, and I listened to the message, and it was, hello, this is the mountain climber. I understand you've been looking for me. And I was like, <laughs> so I called him up, and I wanted to go see him, but of course, couldn't go see him. Um, and he said he would agree to talk to me, but only if, and he called me from a, one of those, every now and again you get those calls where it just says, I don't know if you ever got this, it just says no number. You ever seen those? The mountain climber called me from a no number line. Um, and he told me the full story of Florentino Aspiaga. Now it's important to know before I go on about this that the mountain climber was a legend. The mountain climber was one of the, he was the kind of Michael, the LeBron James of CIA operatives. In his day, everyone worshiped the mountain climber. When the mountain climber was in Eastern Europe, the Soviets used to, used to have courses for their, you know, their, their young KGB officers in training that were about the mountain climber, about like this is what it means to be a great spy and you should learn at the feet of the mountain climber. For a while the mountain climber was in, he ran the, the uh, CIA's Cuba espionage uh, um, uh, operation out of Havana and the Cubans worshipped him. He was like, they knew that there was this American in their midst who was incredible and they just thought, they, they just thought he was a kind of hero. It would be like, you know, a superhero had descended into your, your little uh, city. And he, um, at one point, there's a, I don't know if this is apocryphal, the Soviets tracked down the mountain climber and they had like big briefcases full of cash. And they just opened the briefcases and they said, it, if you just come and work with us, this is all yours. We'll just make you, we'll give you millions of dollars in cash. And of course the mountain climber was like, would have none of it. He spoke a million languages, always like a native. His trade craft was, in, was impeccable. He was the spy's spy. He made, he made James Bond look like a bungler. This is how good the mountain climber is. So I tracked down the mountain climber, and I say, will you tell me about Florentino Aspiaga? And he gives me this big histrionic sigh and says, OK, I will. Florentino was uh, someone high up in the uh, in the Cuban intelligence service who was transferred to run Cuba's intelligence operations in, uh, in Czechoslovakia. In, this is during the Cold War in the 1980s. And he decides to defect. And he, because he's grown disillusioned with Fidel Castro, and he crosses the border with his girlfriend in the trunk of his Mazda. And he shows up at the US Embassy in Vienna and says, my name is Florentino Espiaga. I am a you know, a senior official in the Cuban intelligence directive. I have a story to tell. And of course, they are thrilled that he has come over. And they ship him immediately to, the, uh, to a debriefing center in Frankfurt at a US Army base where the CIA sends all of the defectors. And they sit him down and they say, tell us your story. And he says, I will. But first, I have one request. And they say, what is the request? He says, I would like you to bring over someone who I have admired my entire life the mountain climber. So the CIA calls the mountain climber who's like on some secret location and they fly him into Frankfurt and the mountain climber comes into the room where Florentino is and they, you know, they 
meet each other and they give each other a big hug and they kiss on both cheeks. And the mountain climber sits down with Florentino Espiaga and he says, tell me your story. And Florentino says, you know, El Alpinista, you know, Spanish for mountain climber. I, when you were in Havana running the CIA's operations, you were my hero. I worship, you know, I worship you. I followed your every move. I wanted you to be present when I told you this story. You know you ran a ring of spies when you were in Havana. Mountain climber says, yes, of course I did. He said, and Florentino says, well, you know this one guy you had who was, who you met so in such a place, and he worked for this government ministry, and he showed, told you the following secrets. And the mountain climber says, yes. Florentino says, that guy was working for us. He was a double agent. And the mountain climber is like, oh my god, that's devastating. And then Florentino says, I'm not done. You know this other guy you had who worked for this agency and gave you the following secrets? He was working for us too. And the mountain climber is like, this is suddenly, this is the worst day of his life. And then the Mount, and then Alpinista says, oh, I, I, I'm not done. You know this other spy you had who worked for the you know, Ministry of Defense and told you this? He was working for us too. And the mountain climber at this point has lost the capacity for speech. He's so in shock. But, Al, but Florentino's not done. He then proceeds to name 48 spies, the entire contingent of spies that the mountain climber was running in Havana in his years there. And Florentino reveals that every single one of them was a double agent working for Fidel Castro the whole time. The greatest field operative of his generation had been fooled not once, not twice, but 48 times over the course of many, many years. Now, this is a super interesting story for a number of reasons. One is that when we think about who is, what kinds of people are misled, right, who are victims of scams, we always think that the, the victim of a scam fits a certain pattern. They're, you know, they're impaired in some way, they're gullible, they're aged and infirm, they're, you know, they always have some problem that allows them to be victims of deception. The mountain climber has none of those problems. The mountain climber is as good as it gets, yet he still gets deceived. Fascinating thing number two is that when we think of uh, deception, we think that deception of that scale is something that happens once, right? You get fooled once, and then you get wise to it. Well, the, the mountain climber is not fooled once. He's fooled 48 times over the course of many, many years. In fact, this large-scale Cuban deception went on for more than a decade before it was uncovered. And the third thing we think is that, that when we see some kind of large-scale deception like this, it must be due to the brilliance of the deceiver, right? That there must, the deceiver must be someone possessed of unusual cunning, who has some kind of evil genius, who, and that, that evil genius is what allows them to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. But in the case of the Cubans and the mountain climber, it's not clear at all that the Cubans were particularly great at what they did, right? That they were, this is a small country with a limited budget, working relatively crudely. And in fact, when you look at other cases of spies, you see the same pattern. The spies themselves are rarely geniuses. There was another Cuban spy named Anamantes, whose story I tell in my book, who rose to the very highest levels of American intelligence, even as she was giving away everything she found out back to Fidel Castro. She was a terrible spy. She kept her codes in her purse. 
she, when they finally busted her, after 10 years, they finally busted her, they discovered that she had the radio that she used to communicate with her Cuban handlers inside a shoebox in her closet. This is like amateur hour, right? So that's, these three puzzles make us, I think, um, force us to face up to a very, very uncomfortable truth, which is that being deceived is not the property of some kind of outlying, impaired person. Rather, it's something that happens to even the best of us who are highly skilled at what we do, right? And that even the best of us who are highly skilled at what we do can be deceived over and over again for many, many years um, without realizing that we're being deceived in that way. And that, to me, is an extraordinarily important fact in trying to understand about uh, the, way the, the ways the world works, right? That perhaps the capacity for being deceived is something that lies within all of us. And maybe one of the tasks we have as human beings um, is to learn how to adapt to our fundamental gullibility. Anyway, so that is, the, that is one of the stories that got me off on the project that is uh, talking to strangers, which um, I'm about to talk to, uh, talk about um, a whole lot more. Um, so thanks for coming, and we'll go on to part two. Well, Malcolm Gladwell, this is an honor. Thank you so much for coming to New Hampshire for Writers on a New England Stage. I am delighted. So uh, we'll talk a lot about what's in your book, and the book just came out a couple of days ago. Chances are um, most folks here have not read it. Um, I should say that whatever we talk about here will not spoil it for you. It is an amazing experience to, to follow the narrative that, that you've crafted here. So um, this will be a fun chat. <laughs> Let's start by talking about default to truth, because that's a big premise in this book. Yeah. The, the, the idea that we as human beings are, are programmed to trust the mm. people that we don't know. Um, tell us a little bit about default to truth. Yeah, this is an idea that comes from a very brilliant psychologist named Tim Levine who inspired a lot of this book. And Levine was trying to solve an age-old puzzle that has, that has um, obsessed psychologists for many years, which is why are we so bad at knowing whether someone's lying to us? We're not, we are, if you, if you, there's been, this has been sort of tested hundreds of different ways, but basically we're terrible at it. We're slightly better than chance at knowing whether we're being lied to. And you would think that we would be good at it because you would think that evolution would favor those who were skilled at detecting deception, and it has not. And so the issue for years among psychologists has been, why are we bad at this, right? We're good at so many things. And Levine's answer is, we're bad at it because we did not evolve to be uh, truth detectors. We evolved the opposite way. We evolved to be default to truthers, to be people who implicitly trust each other. Because if you give everyone the benefit of the doubt and assume that everyone you're talking to is telling the truth, your life is a lot easier, right? Who succeeds in the world? Not the paranoid. The people who succeed in the world are the people who trust each other, right? Who starts companies? Not paranoid, suspicious people. People who trust, right? Who, who has a happy, productive home life? The kind of person who basically thinks the world is pretty good, right? You know, I could go on, and, and Levine's point is like, look, the world 
the, the wonderful society that we built um, is based on this notion of just assuming those around you are telling the truth. And most people are telling the truth, so it's not a bad strategy, except that every now and again, like if you're the mountain climber, uh, you, you're going to be an easy prey to a dedicated liar, in that case, the Cuban Intelligence Service. Um, and Levine's point is that you just have to accept that. That's just the price of being human. We should stop fretting about how we gave all our money to Bernie Madoff and just get on with our lives. Um, and I think he's not wrong. I think it's a really, really important consideration. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Bernie Madoff because that's one of the examples I want to dive into because there was at least one person who saw what Bernie Madoff was doing and did not feel in any way incentivized to disbelieve the numbers that he was seeing. That, yeah. Harry Markopoulos. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yeah, so Madoff's around for years, for decades on Wall Street, and he's, he's managing billions of dollars. And there are lots of people in, on Wall Street who don't understand how he's making his money. But their doubts don't, because they default to truth, their doubts do not, rate, do not rise to the level where they will, they will cease to give Madoff the benefit of the doubt. One guy, Harry, a guy named Harry Markopoulos, does not have such a sunny view of Bernie Madoff. From the beginning, Harry Markopoulos says, the guy's a fraud. And he proves it 19 different ways, chapter and verse, goes to the SEC on numerous occasions and says, the guy's a fraud. And the SEC says, oh, I don't know. We went to see him. He was awfully convincing. No one will listen to Harry Markopoulos. And finally, when Madoff is, remember, turned in by his sons, Markopoulos becomes this kind of hero, is the guy, the only guy who saw the truth. So the question is, do you want to be like Harry Markopoulos? Do you want to be the, the, the one who was able to see through the lies of Bernie Madoff? So I went to see Markopoulos, and I also read his memoir, which is one of those middle memoirs. <laughs> and if you read the memoir, you're like, huh, he's really a bit odd. <laughs> and then I went to see him. He lives in Boston. But he would be the first to agree that he's a little bit odd. And I sat down with him in Boston, and we had a very long conversation, during which he revealed himself to be more than a little odd. <laughs> he is the kind of person you would be if you suspected everyone of deceiving you. He can't go five feet without thinking he's about to be tricked or scammed. Or He thinks that, you know, lift a rock, and he thinks that there is some kind of Ponzi scheme under it. Um, well, part of that was his upbringing, right? Like he grew up in a he, restaurant industry, his family owned the restaurant, and he saw people were, walk out of the back of the restaurant with his family's inventory. His, his family owned a, they owned a chain of Treacher's, Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips, which I don't think exists anymore, probably for good reason. But um, <laughs> yeah, he just grew up. I mean, he's just like, but I think, you know, I wonder whether his upbringing, I don't mean to say that someone who grows up in the fast food business is prone That's to That's not what I'm saying, no. I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying <laughs> he, was, he was exposed at an early age to the, the reality that some people are very dishonest yes. and they will take yes. advantage. And but fast he, forward years later, and he's seeing Bernie Madoff take advantage of people. Yes. He is just inclined. And the, the incredible thing is, so he sees the truth of Bernie Madoff, and he's been trying to tell the SEC for years of this. The SEC finally comes, you know, is presented with Madoff confessing all of his crimes, at which point Markopoulos becomes convinced that Madoff will send hitmen to kill him. And so he holes up in his house outside of Boston with like 
a shotgun and like a bandolier of extra ammunition and a gas mask, literally, and like gun trained at the door and expects, any, and then they arrest Madoff and he's like, okay, the Madoff threat has passed, but now there's the SEC threat. And he becomes convinced that the SEC will send a band of like agents who will bust down his door and do harm to him and his family and steal all of his secret files. Mm -hmm. And so he's still like at the door with the gun, blah, blah, blah. And you realize, is it really worth it? Do, do you really want to be the guy who saw the truth of Madoff if it means that you are, instead of like spending time with your kids and watching television <laughs> and going out to dinner with your wife, you are hunkered down with like a bandolier of bullets and a shotgun and a gas mask on waiting, by the way, for the SEC, the notion that the SEC has at its, has a, a group of commandos at their disposal who are just waiting to be dispatched to break into homes in suburban Boston and make off with files held by like paranoid hedge fund guys. I mean, the whole thing is just preposterous. So like, this is Levine's point, you know, uh, Markopoulos is right about Madoff, but wrong about life. And so the solution to, our, to the problem we have of making sense of strangers is not to turn yourself into a crazy paranoid person, right? It's to suck it up and accept the fact that every now and again, you're gonna get cheated, right? That's a small price to pay for the many wonderful things that comes from being a trusting human being. So do you think the mountain climber would have had something to learn from Harry Markopoulos? At least well, one out the of those 48 climber, times? Remember the mountain, what did the mountain climber want to do in Cuba? He talked about this at length. He wanted to create the most effective group of spies in the whole arsenal of the CIA. So he gathered together his group of spies and trusted them because he wanted to inspire them and motivate them. It so happened. <laughs> So happened that he ran into a particularly shrewd adversary who managed to pull the wool over his eyes 48 times. But if I'm the mountain climber, even there, I'm not sure it's a bad, because he couldn't do his job. I mean, the great paradox of being a, uh, running a spy network is you can't do your job if you, if you doubt your own spies. Mm. Right? In fact, this is a, as someone, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with spy stories, and there's always a moment in every great real spy story. There is always a moment when the very, very best spy ever, because he or she is so good, becomes um, uh, suspected of treason by their, so it's, an, it's incredibly, like remember that guy who the CIA just pulled from Russia a few weeks ago or months ago, whenever, we just, news just came out. We had a spy inside Putin's inner circle who was like, you know, taking photos of Putin's secret documents with his phone. He'd been doing it for 10 years. We finally pull him. They tried to pull him a couple years ago, and he didn't want to come, even though you know we tried to pull him because we thought he was about to get busted. And he didn't want to come for family reasons. And because of that, the CIA was suddenly, oh, wait a minute, maybe he's a double agent. You know, you can't, so, so then they were like, well, maybe everything he's told us over the last 10 years has to be discounted. So the point is like, the minute you start engaging in these kind of mind games, you, everything you do is reduced to rubble. Similarly, there was a, one of the greatest spies in the history of Israel was, Israel had a guy um, who was like, 
deep inside the, Europe, the, the Egyptian government who told the Israelis in no uncertain terms a series of incredibly valuable info, including he told them when, the, when Egypt was going to attack during the 1973 um, war, the, the um, Yom Kippur War. But his information was so good and that, it was, that eventually the Israelis convinced themselves that it was unbelievable, that he must be lying to them. Right? So like, the point is, it's pointless not to trust because you've got the best spy in the history of spies who's like saying, I'm, you know, I'm calling you from the office of the Egyptian president. I'm looking at an order which says they're invading uh, tomorrow. You might want to prepare. And the Israelis are like, man, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not buying it. It's too good, right? But in much more prosaic ways, it doesn't get you, as a human being, it gets you nowhere to suspect people of trying to trick you. It just doesn't. The only event, I will give one personal uh, caveat to this. Back in the day, it involves my father, who, to whom this book is dedicated. And he shows up in various, and my, my father passed away two years ago. So it's, that's why he sort of looms large. And, but my father, who is a mathematician, um, and who loved, uh, he was very good with numbers, obviously. And back in the day in the grocery store when, before they had bar scanners, when they would like look at the little thing and then go like this, he would count along with the cashier. And then only if they um, undercharged him, he would correct them. So they would be like, you know, he's shopping for a family of five. There'd be like 150 things in the thing. And the, person is going, my father's going in his head. And then at the end, he would lean in and say, I actually owe you $1.50 more. <laughs> so, but that wasn't suspicion. That was just my dad playing a parlor trick, a kind of mathematician's parlor trick on some unsuspecting um, cashier. But um, the, the point is, though, that you can't get anywhere in the world if that's the way you operate. There's the idea of deliberate deception, right? Like mm -hmm. what you're describing. And then there's also um, the, the idea of transparency, the assumption that the person we are looking at is being completely transparent with their, their emotions. And you, you cite facial expressions and you cite Friends, the show Friends, mm -hmm. as an example of how, you know, everybody on that show, when they feel something, they wear it on their face. And there's, you can, like you write in this book, you could watch the show with no sound and figure yeah. out how those people feel. But people don't, real people don't act that way. And yeah. so that's a different aspect of talking to strangers in that they're not deliberately trying to deceive. Yeah. They're just not showing you exactly what they feel. So I did this fun thing. Um, I, I got an episode of Friends. And Friends is interesting because if you try and describe the plot of an episode of Friends to somebody, <laughs> you can't. It's too complicated. It's like there's like 17 different things that happen and there are constantly there's reversals and like you know say then Phoebe says to Joey and Joey says to Rye, Rye. you're like what? But if you watch an episode of Friends, no one has ever watched an episode of Friends and said I don't understand what happened there. <laughs> like it's never happened. So why is it that a show could be so complicated in, on the page but so easy to explain? And the reason is that Everything about the emotional life of people and friends is transparent. And I actually proved this, and I think she might be in the audience. Jennifer, are you in the audience? Oh, yes. So I did this fun thing. 
I got an episode of Friends, and I found there was a group of psychologists who are expert in registering, analyzing, and, and notating the emotions that are on people's faces. One of those experts is a woman named, a professor named Jennifer Fogarty, who's in the audience, I think. <laughs> and <laughs> so I send her, and she was so fun to play along. I sent her a clip of, I think, the, probably the first time of my right, the first time someone has sent you a clip of Friends to analyze. Um, and I said, here's like two minutes of a Friends episode. Walk me through the facial expressions of the people and tell me what's on the face of Ross. When Ross is angry, what's on his face? So what she did was she annotated this and she revealed to me, sure enough, that when Ross is angry, his face looks angry. When Phoebe is surprised, her jaw drops, her eyes grow wide and her eyebrows go up. When, you know, when Rachel is, you know, is, has conflicted emotion, her face shows conflicted emotions. Everything about that show is completely transparent. That's why you can follow it along. In fact, you can turn the sound off on an episode of Friends and you will be no further behind than if you listen to the words, right? But that's not how real life works. In real life, people don't perfectly telegraph their emotions on their faces. And so what happens, I think, is that we watch lots and lots of television shows where Joey you know, is, looks every bit as angry as he feels, and we think that's what happens in the real world, and that's not. And what does that do? That leads us to make grave mistakes. And I have a chapter on that chapter where I talk about Jennifer Fogarty's work with friends. It's all about, among other things, Amanda Knox. What is the Amanda Knox case about? It is about this. It is about a woman who gets falsely accused of a crime, you know, a young The murder of her roommate. Yes. Murdering her yeah. roommate in Perugia, Italy, and jailed for four years. Why? Because her facial expressions did not match the expectations that Italian law enforcement and the British tabloid press had of someone whose roommate has just been murdered. They thought, you're, they thought if your roommate's been murdered, you're supposed to look and behave a certain way, and she didn't. And they said, oh, she must be guilty. She Wrong. didn't act sad. She didn't seem to be sad. She didn't seem grief-stricken. She seemed angry or weirded out or any number of things. She's just, she's just a slightly atypical, gawky, immature teenager. She's not a murderess. And yet, she goes to jail for four years. And it makes you wonder how many people in our society are uh, wrongfully judged with catastrophic consequences because they fail to conform to our naive expectations about what, um, about what uh, emotion supposed to look like. Now, the reason why this is interesting from the standpoint of talking to strangers is that if I know you, I don't make that mistake. So if you and I have known each other for 30 years, I become aware of all of the ways your facial expressions are idiosyncratic. So, I, so maybe you're someone who, when you're super, super interesting, interested in something, you actually look bored. And I begin to understand, oh, you look bored, that must mean you're interested. Right? And I, and I give you, I, I, cut, I cut you some slack. This is a but hypothetical. If, hypothetical. <laughs> hypothetical. But if I don't know you, I say, oh, you, you're bored. Right? And you're not. You're, in fact, passionately engaged. I am passionately engaged <laughs> right now. I just want everybody to know that. <laughs> and the flip side of that is um, the example you used in this book of judges seeing defendants in their courtrooms and trying to assess 
the level of remorse that they seem to have on their face. Yeah. And, and as you write here, judges are worse than rolling the dice, essentially, yeah. on how remorseful someone is and how likely they are to reoffend. We're just not good at figuring out how people feel. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, this does not reflect well in the judicial system because there are various things. You know, one is we ask judges to make bail determinations. Is the defendant in front of me so dangerous that they should be jailed awaiting trial or so harmless and so remorseful they can be allowed to go free? The whole bail decision is based on the premise that a judge can look at somebody and accurately and usefully determine their likelihood of committing another crime. You can't do that, right? And sure enough, when you try and assess the accuracy of judges' bail decisions, they're really terrible. Of course they are terrible. That's an impossible thing to ask a human being to do. Hmm. Um, one of the things that, is, uh, that makes it difficult for people uh, to read each other's emotions is alcohol, as you write here. Yeah. Um, and you describe it as creating a sense of myopia. It's myopic. Mm -hmm. yeah. can, can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so I wanted to do a chapter on campus sexual assaults in this book because it struck me that if I was interested in writing about how conversations between strangers go awry, that was a really big category because a lot of campus, not all of them, but a lot of campus assaults begin, campus sexual assaults, begin with a benign encounter of two people meet under relatively normal circumstances and start a conversation and then at some point later in the evening, you know, something terrible happens, a crime is committed or something else. And so I wanted to understand, well, why are these things happening? When you look at the numbers, the, you know, even the very best and conservative numbers suggest that, can't, that sexual assaults on campus are way, 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 way out of control, right? Huge. Um, and when I went to talk to people who study them, they all said exactly the same thing, which is like five minutes into the conversation, they would say, well, you have to talk about alcohol, right? I was like, oh, I didn't know that. And they're like, yeah, this is a problem, not wholly the result of alcohol, but in overwhelmingly these are cases about people who are drunk. They're not too sober people. They're too drunken people. And what alcohol does to you is of enormous significance in this question. So what does alcohol do to you? How does it affect your ability to have a conversation with someone on a dance floor? Um, and our common understanding of alcohol is that alcohol disinhibits, meaning that what alcohol does is it strips away all of the kind of surface constraints and reveals the real you. So you'll say, how many of us have come back from hanging out with some friend who was a little bit tipsy or more, and they told us a series of things they wouldn't otherwise have told us, and our assumption is, oh, what they were telling us is true, because they were drunk and the truth could come out, right? So you think you're seeing when you see someone drunk, you, you really think you're seeing is an authentic version of themselves, a more authentic version. Nothing could be further from the truth. The opposite is true. What drunkenness does is it shuts down your higher cognitive processes and leaves behind someone, a person, who can no longer think about tomorrow, can only think about right now, and can no longer think of anything other than the thing directly in front of their face. So it turns you into someone who's myopic. You are, so right now, I don't start, swear, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't start swearing or 
telling off-color stories or being incredibly rude because, among other, other reasons, I'm aware of the consequences, right? Tomorrow, people will walk around Portsmouth saying, this guy Gladwell's a jackass. <laughs> and I don't want people to walk around Portsmouth saying I'm a jackass, right? So Malcolm, the real Malcolm is someone, like all of us, who, does, who considers what to do based in part of its long-term consequences, right? That's who I am. I'm someone who takes long-term consequences seriously. That's what all of us are. That's what it means to be a human being. Alcohol destroys that and makes you someone who only thinks about the short term. That is not your real you, right? So now when you think about it, so two drunken teenagers who are having a conversation, they're, they're not themselves in that conversation. So question number one is, if they are not themselves, how can either of them consent to sexual activity? Consent is based on the premise that the person consenting is the real person, right? But if you're not yourself, how can you consent? Problem number one. Problem number two is, it, if the person who is drunk is a departure from your true self, then you raise the very real possibility that you are capable of doing things while drunk that you would never do while sober. And that is the part of this that's getting lost, that we need to be telling young men, most of all, that if you get super wasted, you are vastly increasing your odds of committing criminal acts, acts that you would never dream of doing while sober, right? And if you don't understand that, when you make the decision to drink, then you are putting your own future at risk and also the future of others at risk. And I don't, I, we have somehow lost this notion. We have a now, it's fascinating to look at, there's all this sort of survey data that asks uh, college kids questions about sexual assault and other things, and then ask them what do they think the role of alcohol is in this. And they're indifferent to the role. They don't think alcohol is a big deal in this. They don't think of it in any way as implicated in this problem. And that is bananas, right? You can't get blackout drunk and expect there to be a benign set of consequences. And I think we are, you know, when we look for reasons why all of these harmless encounters are turning so badly awry, um, in campuses, we've got to start with alcohol. And the other thing I would say, the last thing I would say on this, and I could go on and on about this because I feel very strongly about it, is that I think the people of my generation and your generation vastly, um, we misunderstand how much the culture of drinking has changed in the last 10 or 15 years on campuses. It's not like it was when, no, I'm beginning to sound like the old guy on the couch, right? <laughs> but it, you know, we have the data. We can. There is a very, very good data on this, and drinking is very, very different. Fewer people are drinking now than used to drink, but those who do drink are drinking far more, and particularly women are drinking far more than they used to. They are now, in many cases, matching men drink for drink, which is... Pushing them into blackout territory. Pushing them into blackout territory, and um, physiologically, it is madness for women to match men drink for drink. They don't, you know, the... The differences between men and women are so great that that is essentially um, uh, creating an outcome where women are vastly more inebriated than men in these settings, and that's mm. not good. This is a really difficult thing to write about. I mean, the, the example that you used here, uh, one of the examples Wait anyway, is Brock Turner. Yeah, sure. Why is it difficult to write about? I, I feel it's difficult because of the climate that we are in and the difficulty I have faced, frankly, in, in, in finding a way 
to get at the idea that if you talk about sexual assault in this way in the context of alcohol, some will say, wait a minute, we don't want to give people like Brock Turner a pass and just say, oh, he was drunk and he wouldn't have done this if he weren't drunk. Why does that give him a pass? I, I don't well, see, I don't the, know. I don't know why that would It's it, the opposite. It's like, dude, you made a decision to go crazy that night with alcohol. You need to own up to the consequences. Nobody made you drink that much. You did, right? And you are just in the same way, no one, the observation that someone who is drunkenly driving, um, uh, we don't use the fact of their inebriation as an excuse. No, we hold them accountable. Like, this is, sorry to jump on you on this, but so much of people's hesitancy to tackle really crucial topics right now is based on a fantasy about how those comments will be received. Um, I don't think people will jump to this conclusion having read that chapter. I don't think it's tricky to talk about the role of alcohol. I think it's really straightforward. You get wasted, bad things happen. Like That is the most kind of straightforward common sense and you are responsible for your decision to get wasted and so you need to be, you know, that we can't, we can't go around inhibiting what we're willing to say, particularly as journalists, based on fears about how it will be received. Like that's just, that's an abnegation of, if we have one responsibility as journalists, it is to tell people what we believe to be true, right? Certainly, yeah. Well, I was curious about what kind of conversations you may have had with your editor about that part. Was it a, was it a, a well, so off-discussed now subject. The one thing, the one thing I will say in support of your comment is that there is a way to have written that chapter such that it would legitimately have been perceived as victim blaming or excusing. So I had to be very careful that I didn't write it in that way. That's what I mean yes, by it's, it's yes. tricky. You don't yeah. want to say something that is there are rightfully so a lot of sensitivity around this subject and, and you as a writer have to imagine all the possible yeah. people out there yeah. who may feel this more strongly than someone like me who had never experienced sexual assault so I would not experience this yeah. chapter in the way that someone who has had a, that experience. Yeah, you, there's a line you have to walk and you can't wander on either side of the line mm. and so I did go, I rewrote that chapter more than any other chapter in the book and I put together a panel of 21-year-old women and had them read it and give me comments. And, you know, I, so you got to be careful because you're right, it's tricky, but I don't think, but it's not impossibly tricky. It no. just, yeah, no, it you just pulled requires... it off. I mean, well, I'm curious now, what were some of the comments you received from that panel? Uh, Do you remember? Well, actually, you know, it was, it was, it was actually a really, really, really interesting exercise because, uh, one of the things you discover, so you know as someone who, any, any journalist knows this, that your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth drafts typically do not represent what you believe. In other words, the reason you write is both to figure out what you believe and also figure out how to write what you believe, and it takes a while. Um, so what happened, what was really interesting was I wrote an early draft of that chapter and I gave it first to my assistant who a, was a 23-year-old woman just recently graduated from college. And she pointed to all the different ways in which my 
male biases were on display. And without meaning to, the early draft probably did veer on a, into, the, into the bad area of that line. And she pointed out to me, and had I not given it to her, I wouldn't have seen it. And so it alerted me to the fact like, even under the best of intentions, um, you cannot, without help, escape your biases, right? And it's a, it's a, all writers know this, but we tend to forget it from time to time. And it's really, really useful to be reminded of the fact that bias is real. And if you're writing about these kinds of cases, you will write it from the perspective of your, of your gender first. And that's not necessarily what you want to write, but that's just how it begins. So I was, that's, those are the things, and these aren't sort of macro things, they're just kind of choice of language, it's emphasis, it's all kinds of the way the argument flows, the, um, uh, yeah, like just kind of little, because when, yeah, little kind of nuancey things, and I think that I, corrected most of those in that chapter. I, I don't have any anxiety about that chapter being misperceived. Mm -hmm. um, well, while we're on the heavy stuff, I want to ask you about the, the chapter you wrote about Jerry Sandusky. Mm -hmm. And um, I think for me reading that, the, the focus was more on the people uh, who had suspicions or yeah. people who thought they saw something. And the chapter seemed to be trying to figure out what level of culpability those people had. Yeah. Um, what are your thinking, what's your thinking on those people? I mean, there, there are various different stories, but, but yeah. where, where did your thinking land? My inclination is that the decision made by the prosecutors in the Penn State, so this is, we're referring to the, this notorious case of a couple years ago when a football coach at Penn State was found to be a serial child molester. And, and having after sort of years and years and years of predation, he's finally caught and convicted and put in jail, whereupon the prosecutors turn their attention to the leadership of Penn State and prosecute the leadership as well, including the president of the university. And my focus in the chapter is, was it appropriate uh, to also pursue criminal charges against the leadership of the school? In other words, can you hold people in positions of under what circumstances can you hold people of positions of authority responsible for not understanding the strangers in their midst? And a, a pedophile is, by, is a classic definition of a stranger. A pedophile is someone who expends an enormous amount of effort and ingenuity on hiding their dark impulses from those around them, right? That's, they wake up and they spend their entire day thinking about this problem. How can I pursue my desires without getting caught? So, you know, can we blame people in positions of authority if they fall prey to that deception? And my uh, conclusion was, in the specific instance of Penn State, I think not. I think it was a travesty to go after the leadership of Penn State. In the case of Larry Nasser in Michigan State, I think the opposite. I think that the evidence was clear enough that they ought to have acted way sooner. But those are very, very different kind of cases. But I think it's important, though, to understand that once it is a dangerous road to get on to start uh, acting in a punitive way towards those who are the victims of deception. So 
do you put the victims of Bernie Madoff in prison for being fooled by Madoff? The parents, in the case of Larry Nassar, many of the parents of the young girls who were being abused by Larry Nassar were in the room while their children were being molested. In the room. And there's a famous instance where one of the mothers observed that as Larry Nassar was treating her 11-year-old daughter, he had an erection. She saw the erection. And then she saw him put his fingers inside her daughter's vagina. She was a medical doctor. She did nothing. Do you put her in jail? No, you don't. Why don't you put her in jail? Because you understand that the complex psychological mechanisms that all of us have that make it very hard for us to reach that kind of conclusion about a stranger, right? We default to truth. We want to believe the best. She explained it away, as one does, because to acknowledge that you had allowed your daughter to be treated by a pedophile, I mean, it's, an, it's a, the enormity of that is overwhelming, right? So what is the appropriate attitude to have towards the parent in that instance? To have compassion for the parent. They have to live with that fact every day for the rest of their lives. They have, but you don't put them in jail for negligence, right? And you also understand that, oh my God, there but for the grace of God go I. We are conditioned as human beings to be, I mean, the mountain climber was fooled by, a, you know, the savviest, most brilliant guy in the world was fooled by the, by, we can easily be fooled. And to pretend that somehow um, being fooled is evidence of venality or negligence or incompetence is just crazy. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be really, really, really careful. And we need to have um, compassion for uh, the victims of deceivers as opposed to being filled with this kind of, of, of self-righteousness. You write here especially with respect to Penn State and, and the president of Penn State, Graham Spanier, um, that we want someone who defaults to truth in that case mm -hmm. if they are running a huge university and, and, and trying to treat their employees well. Um, we don't want someone like Harry Markopoulos. We don't we want don't. a holy fool. Can you imagine having a president of your university who was Harry Markopoulos, who suspected everyone of wrongdoing, who was following you as you left the cafeteria to make sure you didn't pocket any utensils. I mean, yeah. that's not what you want, right? right? That that would be ridiculous. But I also thought, like, all right, who would I, let's say, is it, the question I had is, is it different if children are involved? Like, let's say I am uh, a parent, I'm not a parent, but let's say I was, and I had to leave my child with someone. Mm -hmm. And I had two choices. I had Graham Spanier, who is default to truth, and who may trust anybody who also comes up to my child while they are in this person's care? Or would I give my child for a weekend to Harry Markopoulos? And hypothetically, and Harry Markopoulos is not going to trust anyone near my kid. And for a weekend, I got to say, I'd probably go with Harry Markopoulos. Are you serious? Well, oh my God. It's probably a good thing that I'm not a parent, but, but Harry Markopoulos is. Harry Mar Markopoulos is not going to let anyone near my kid, and, and I want my kid Why to be in one piece when I get back. Why do you kid up in the basement if you're so concerned? <laughs> not, well, I mean, let's just say if I had that terrible binary choice um, over the weekend, um, because I want my kid to be safe, and I don't, want, I don't want someone like, someone who is so defaulting to truth for someone to say, hey, I've got some candy in my van. Let me borrow your kid for a moment. No, like, so let me, let me, let's reword that question because. Okay. Um, 
I think that the, you've given us. Uh, Maybe you, this is an extreme example, but I often wonder, like. You've it, given us not do, a very useful hypothetical, if okay. I might be so. Um, there is a middle ground, a reasonable middle ground. So why do, when you go to the dentist and the dentist puts you under before a root canal, there is always a second person in the office. They always have a, they'll always have a nurse present or a dental assistant present. Why is that? Because years and years ago, there were a series of cases in which people came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that while they were under a general anesthetic, the dentist had abused them, right? So what dentists said quite reasonably was, 99.999% of us do not sexually abuse our patients while they're under general anesthetic. But let's just take a reasonable precaution, and let's just say to the hygienist, why don't you just come into the office with me while I'm putting someone under general anesthesia, so that you can say if this charge is ever levied, that actually, no, I was there the whole time, it's fine, right? It's a very simple way to resolve this. We haven't turned patients and dentists into paranoid Harry Markopoulos's. We've just had a very simple hack which resolves the issue. There are other ways to do it. You don't have to suspect your financial advisor, every financial advisor, of being a Madoff level fraud, but you can do something as simple as not give your money to a guy who can't explain his trading strategy. Seems reasonable. Or if your financial advisor returns a 12% return year in, year out, regardless of the state of the markets, you might want to ask yourself whether it's real, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to be Harry Markopoulos. You just want to say, well, you know, if my financial advisor defies the laws of physics year in, year out, I might want to open a Schwab account and go somewhere real, right? <laughs> so there's a middle ground here where we just act, re and I think what most productive parents do is occupy that middle ground, right? They don't suspect the Boy Scout uh, you know, leader of being a pedophile, but they do go with their kid one day to the Boy Scout thing, and if they see that, oh, there's like three people with the kids at all times, and they think, okay, it's fine, mm -hmm. right? So I think those are, those are appropriate steps that we can take. We can, so in other words, we can acknowledge the fact that I can't look into the heart of the, the dentist or the Boy Scout master or the, I can't know for certain whether they are this rare, rare example of a, of a deviant or a deceiver. But what I can do is take a reasonable precaution that allows me to sleep well at night and I can leave my fundamentally trusting nature intact. And more than that, I can allow my children to leave there, to grow up with a fundamentally trusting nature. Because if your kid grows up to be like Harry Markopoulos, your kid is going to grow up unhappy. Right? And I think the fundamental role of a parent is not, as you said, to keep your children safe. It is to keep your children happy. I mean, I'm not a parent either, but so. <laughs> two non-parents talking about guys, parenting right we're now. We're two guys arguing Sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can talk after the show. About this thing called kids. <laughs> about how much we do not know about, we, about which we speak. I understand they're like smaller. <laughs> I don't know how they work exactly, but. I owe everybody here an apology. Um, so, so, well, okay, so here's, here's an example I wanted to run by you because you can help us sort of think a little bit more practically about figuring out the intentions of the person, the stranger before us. So let's, mm -hmm. say, let's say you're dating, right? You're dating someone and someone is this, the person you're dating is, is relatively new to you and you sit down for a conversation over coffee or whatever. And this person confesses to you and says, look, the past 
two or three, we'll, we'll say for this example, three. The past three people I've been in a long-term relationship with, I have cheated on. I am incredibly remorseful over it, and I'm, and I'm never going to do it again. And mm -hmm. from where you sit, this person confessing this to you mm -hmm. looks really remorseful about it. And, and Wait, has, this is not a first date? No, well, let's, oh. no, let's say it's not a first date. Um, that, oh. I was going to say, you must have very different experience of first dates than I do. <laughs> no, no, this is totally hypothetical as well. Zin, yeah. Um, okay, but yeah, so, so this person has, on the one hand, sort of made a confession that maybe if they didn't, you'd never, you'd never yeah. know. But also, if you looked at them on paper and you had this stat in front of you, that would give you pause. So mm. how do you evaluate, how do you weigh the resume, so to speak, versus the, the, the remorse that you think you see and, and the demonstration of honesty yeah. in front of you. How would you go well, about weighing that? Jennifer Fugati in the audience would tell you, if we asked her, um, she would ask the question, what, what does remorse look like? So all of us have a notion of what it means to be remorseful, but if you actually interrogate that notion, you'll discover that there is no signature uh, set of of facial expressions that signature that signal remorse. Remorse is an incredibly amorphous um, emotion. And secondly, to the extent we can identify what a remorse looks like, we have no reason to believe that our, our remorseful look matches a truly remorseful feeling on the inside. So if someone looks remorseful in this context, there's no reason to believe them. Um, and if they have a long track record of cheating, I suppose common sense would say, if it, what's the expression? Walks like a duck. <laughs> or maybe a leopard doesn't change his spots, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a number of, I think, useful Good cliches that could, be, there. that could be employed to clarify the situation. But I would be more concerned about, I'm sort of, but I'm intrigued by the notion that the person's telling you that they've cheated in their last three. I just find that kind of fascinating. I would be so in awe of like, whoa, like, if you're willing to tell that? Like, is that, you know, is that in your, you know, match.com profile? <laughs> you know, under personal interest, cheating on significant others, <laughs> feeling bad afterwards. <laughs> I would like to transition from, <laughs> from, <laughs> From cheaters to, to presidential candidates, because we in New Hampshire, well, we have access to them here in New Hampshire, and we see them up close, yeah. and, we, and we try our best to sort of read their expressions and their tones of voice when they are here talking to New Hampshire voters, but they also have a resume. They have a vote, a lot of them do. A lot of them have a voting record. A lot of them have a history that we can sort of scrutinize, mm -hmm. and so is, do we kind of use that same evaluative muscle when we're looking at these presidential candidates? I mean, should we, should we stop going to these events because they don't mean anything and just like look at how they voted on congress.gov or something like that? Totally. I mean, <laughs> the one thing we should not do is conduct debates and judge them on the basis of how they perform in a debate. Like, that's absurd. The job of being president of the United States is not based on your ability to shine in a multi-person debate under the lights in front of an inquisitor from CNN. I mean, it's the most contrived like, rule number one of picking someone for a job is the criteria you use to judge them on should match the things that you are looking for in the job, right? <laughs> you, you know, when you're trying to pick someone who, to be a receiver in the NFL, you want to know how well they catch passes. You don't particularly care about, you know, how well they, I don't know, 
how good their essays are, or we don't ask draftees to write position papers on the slant route, right? <laughs> See how, they, how well they express their feelings about that particular football play. But that seems to be what we're doing here. Like, does it really matter whether they give a snappy answer? In fact, the whole job of being president is not about giving snappy answers. It's about being thoughtful and careful. And so a really fun game that I feel we should play right now is um, <laughs> let's imagine what a better, so you know these people. You mean, you know, you're a reporter, like you've met them all the time. I've met a few. Um, should I, by the way, can I tell my one story about my connection to one of the candidates? Please do, yes. Okay. So my mom is Jamaican. My parents lived in Jamaica for many years. Uh, Kamala Harris, her dad, Jamaican. Uh, and I went on Google once and noticed that her dad was from the same little town in Jamaica where my mom went to high school. So I emailed him. I was like, dear Professor Harris, because he's a professor of economics at Stanford. I just, you don't know me, but I noticed you're from Brownstown. My mom went to school in Brownstown. What a funny coincidence. He emails back, Mr. Gladwell, not only am I aware that your mom went to school in Brownstown, and I would see the, the school was St. Hills. I would see the St. Hills girls going to church every Saturday morning. I'm sure I saw your mom. But when I went to do my undergraduate work at the University of West Indies in Kingston, I was, didn't know what I wanted to study, and I decided to choose to take a mathematics course, which led to my getting a PhD in economics, because there was a professor at the University of West Indies who encouraged me to study math, and that professor was dot, 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 your father. Oh. So if Kamala wins, I'm going to say, Kamala's not around if Kamala's mom doesn't meet Kamala's dad. And Kamala's mom doesn't meet Kamala's dad unless he goes to Stanford. And he doesn't go to Stanford unless he studies economics. And he doesn't study economics without my dad. So I'm sorry, Gladwells are going to be the reason if she wins. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. <laughs> anyway, that's just my, she has to win for me to really truly dine out on this story. So I've, fingers crossed, vote for Kamala. Um, but no, let's figure out. So clearly the debate, bad idea, crazy. Let's come up with better, better idea. Do you have, a, do you have any better suggestions? I do not. OK. I do not. I thought about this. I'll, let, me, let me start. <laughs> so what about this? What about, I'm going to have a serious one and a not so serious one. The not so serious one is sort of intrigues me. Um, what are we interested in when it comes? So these people are, these are strangers, right? And right now the whole notion of the electoral season is based on the completely erroneous premise that we can get to know a stranger over the next couple months and make an extraordinarily important determination in that period, which is whether they are fit to be president of the United States. And everything that I have come to believe after writing this book suggests to me that that is a fool's errand. So let's do a better job. Um, one thing that would be really fun to do would be to give them really hard, complex, real-world problems. So we say to them, uh, let's imagine we construct a scenario about a, I don't know, a foreign policy crisis in 2022 involving name two countries. And we lay it all out to them, and we say, how would you deal with that? You have six hours, and you need to send us uh, 
a videotape in six hours of you giving a 20-minute presentation on how you intend to deal with this crisis. We put all the answers online. So they have six hours. They can consult whoever they want. They're asked to formulate a thoughtful response. And we can judge them. That's a very real-world scenario where they would be presented with a crisis that they need to respond to quickly. And we, what we want to know is, do they think well under time pressure? Can they put together an effective team of advisors who can help them? Uh, and can they communicate effectively to the American people under those circumstances, right? That seems to me, and then we play the videos, right? And we give them five different scenarios, one a week for five weeks until we have a library for every candidate. And you go home in the leisure of your, of your evening and you look at all of the videos and then you make it a, here's my other idea. The other idea is sort of a lot more trivial and frivolous, but I think also useful. I really want to know how they, well they play certain games. Like, like while you were talking, I was thinking escape room? No, no, I was thinking Scrabble. <laughs> in, my ex in my experience, Scrabble is enormously revelatory. At least it is in the Gladwell family. And so I, the idea of splitting them up into groups of four and having them play extended games of Scrabble, which are all videotaped and live streamed. And I want to know, like, everyone's talking about Joe Biden's fitness. I'm sorry, if he can't do well in Scrabble, I'm going to worry about his fitness. If all, of his, if all of his words are like four letters long and he has like no double word scores, I'm going to be like, Joe, like, <laughs> this is a demanding job. You just scored like 25 on your Scrabble. Like, this is a problem, right? We've got to talk. Um, I don't know. I just think that would be useful. I'd love to get to some uh, uh, audience questions uh, before, we, before we have to wrap. Uh, one of them is um, uh, about the cultural divide. In a polarized American climate, someone asks, how can talking to strangers, your book, help us to approach others and otherness and close the divide? How can that help us? Uh, uh, how can your book essentially help us close the divide between oh, disparate groups here in this country? Uh, well, I, only in the sense that my book alerts you to the potential for misunderstanding and alerts you to the dangers of overconfidence in your judgments of others. So, I guess I would say that the first thing you ought to ask yourself if you perceive yourself to be in disagreement with someone is do I actually disagree with them or do I simply misunderstand them? And I always thought, I've said this many times now, that when I look at Twitter, at least 75% of the disputes on Twitter are not disputes, they're misunderstandings. That they're just people just haven't bothered to figure out what the other person's saying. And then they go off and off on some like long. And this book just says, look, misunderstanding happens all the time. And that should lead you to slow down and, and then being humble about, you know, if it is really hard to draw a good conclusion about a stranger, then you should be cautious, super cautious. Someone wanted to know, if you weren't an author, would you likely have been a psychologist? No, I, I always wanted to be a real estate developer. <laughs> and I still, kind of, I still kind of want to be a real estate developer, but I'm, you know, I'm locked in to... Being a journalist now. I just always thought, even as a kid, I was like, the idea of being able to build buildings and like look at them for the rest of your life and say, I built that is kind of kind of great. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a real estate developer like some <laughs> real estate developers, but 
Someone wanted to know, uh, what is the easiest way we can avoid misunderstanding or create a framework for understanding in communications with new people? Well, I think it's really important for us to limit our intake of information to the things that are relevant. So this is a little pet peeve of mine that I've been obsessed with for a while now, and that is that I, I no longer believe in job interviews. I think that they're just opportunities for um, misunderstanding and misapprehension. So why you need to ask yourself if you're hiring somebody before you decide to bring them in for the face-to-face -face interview, what exactly will I, what exact information am I gathering from the face-to-face -face interview that is actually helping me in this job decision, right? So, for example, academics always do the job talk where you're a graduate student, you're looking to get a job somewhere, and they fly you in, and they line up a bunch of grad students and professors, and they make you give this incredibly high stakes, you know, 45 minute talk on your, whatever you're working on. And it's kind of absurd when you think about it, because what you're doing is you're judging someone's ability or capacity, aptitude for being a professor, which is a job that explicitly does not involve high stakes presentations, <laughs> by giving them a high stakes presentation. Think about it, you become a professor because you don't believe in deadlines. You don't want to be, <laughs> legitimately, you don't want to be judged on what comes out of your mouth in the, inst in the moment. You want to go and think about it for six months and rewrite it 70 times, and that's what you want to be judged on. So in that environment, which is great, we want people who are, think that way to be academics. So how do we pick them? We make it like a reality show and we have them show up and do the exact thing that they are not, that they entered that field to avoid, right? Mm. It's madness. So don't meet them. In fact, there's one, you know, the Princeton philosophy department does adhere to this rule. They do not meet the people they hire. They simply read their philosophy papers. Um, and I desperately wanted to talk to someone from the philosophy department about this practice, and I called them up, and none of them would meet with me. <laughs> Which I, I thought was so genius. It was okay. like, of course, they don't want to meet with me. Why would they? They've read my stuff and have found me, you know, to be completely unworthy of their time and attention. <laughs> okay, well, I'll wrap on this. Um, how does it feel to have been quoted in a Macklemore song? Well... Pretty good. Although, <laughs> if I can be um, greedy for a moment, I would rather have been quoted in a, you know, JC song or <laughs> Eminem. Or, you know, I mean, if we're going to go down that road and you're going to open me up to the possibility that hip hop artists are going to quote me, I'm going to set my aspirations higher than Macklemore. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Okay. Well, hey, 10,000 hours is kind of, it's, no, I mean, it's I, in I the mean, popular culture now because I, of you. You know, like, a man can dream. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Well, Malcolm Gladwell, thank you so much for being here on Writers on a New England stage. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The Music Hall's executive producer is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio's interim executive director is Mark Kaplan. NHPR's digital and broadcast producer is Sarah Plourd. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. 
The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer is Ian Martin. Musical Director and Band Tonight are Bob Lord and Dreadnought. The Music Hall Literary Coordinator is Brittany Wasson. And I'm Peter Biello. Thanks again for coming to Writers on the New England Stage. Thank you.